Hello out there. I'm Whitney. And I'm Will. And you're listening to Yelling About Superheroes. This is episode 8, Weekend at Ultron. Basically, we have different opinions on Avengers Age of Ultron, and after rewatching it, we talk about some points of contention, such as the consistency or lack thereof of Tony Stark's character development and the Bruce and Natasha romance. Hey guys, so we just rewatched Avengers Age of Ultron, and we've had differing opinions on it for a while. So basically, this episode is just going to be us trying to figure out whether this movie is actually good or bad or you know probably somewhere in between so where do we want to start well um i guess we might as well start at the beginning yeah it's as good a place as any so um, yeah so age of ultron is andrew's movie anybody who hasn't lived under a rock for the past like 10 years knows that look i'm just trying to set the mood here okay wikipedia you know, go on it's got ultron in it and it's got the Avengers in it. They fight. I guess we could start with the opening sequence, which is this yeah. fun uh, fight thing of just the Avengers ganging up on Hydra. Yeah, on Baron von Strucker, who is teased in some post credit scenes, in case you don't know enough about Marvel to friggin' stay for the post credit scenes. But I'll, I'll admit, okay, overall, I would say this movie holds up better than I thought it would um like in the context of the entire mcu thus far which is what we've been rewatching, it holds up better than i thought i did i really did like the opening sequence which is just like it's sort of like a continuous shot it's basically okay it wasn't quite the start but it was functionally the start yeah the avengers just like kicking the behinds of strucker's minions um it, there, there, there were some really cool shots and like moves and team-ups in there i will i will admit that yeah the i think most interesting thing about that is that it establishes um the avengers didn't entirely go their separate ways at the end of the first avengers movie like they've been gathering up they've been doing stuff in this case mostly just taking down hydra mm -hmm. but they've you know, they haven't just gone their separate ways and regather now for the movie. They're still together. They're still working as a team and they are still damn good at it. I'd say better at it than they were in first event, the first Avengers movie, which is different from Captain America, the first Avenger. Welcome to the MCU. Like that yes. was very much a story of a bunch of dysfunctional people learning how to at least temporarily set their individual pettiness aside and work to stop a larger threat um, yeah and i think the cool thing uh, like the way this movie starts it's got like the continuous shots it's got the slow-mo like comic book panel shots yeah of them all just in a line approaching strucker's uh facility that was the cool. jump shot the jump oh shot was that awesome. was cool yeah that was that was pretty cool yeah and it's, it's like this movie is the only movie we see that's where the Avengers are, it's weird. It's weird to phrase it like this necessarily, but it's basically showing the Avengers at their best, and in some and in some ways also some of their worst. But it's showing them as a team and as a good team, functional for sure. Maybe you're more. Maybe I'm more generous than you are. Um, but yeah, it really is cool to see them like getting to be the Avengers for the whole movie. Yeah, I can I can see that. 
Yeah. But of course they get massively thrown off their game when Von Strucker unleashes uh, Wanda and Pietro, aka Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver on them. Well, they kind of unleash themselves, really. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That kind of is how that happens. Um, Strucker's all like, no surrender. And then he's like, I'm going to surrender. <laughs> Strucker's interest. I mean, Strucker I like as a character. set him up to be a much bigger villain than he actually is. Like, he ends up friggin' dead with his blood painting his cell wall, like, yeah, halfway I mean, into the movie. Yeah, the thing is, like, Strucker as a character is not interesting, but it is interesting that Strucker is so much less important than he is in the comics. Like, in the comics, he's a major, like, Hydra figure. Mm-hmm. Um, in, the sh- in the movies, he's, I mean, still a major Hydra figure, but he's not very important for the story except as a method of establishing the adventures being around yeah so okay and we've already gotten to one thing about this movie that really pisses me off um strucker is it strucker or his like sort of scientist lackey dr list really that's that guy's name yeah i just know because he was in agents of shield too oh no i was i was about to pull a tony be like oh his first name is doctor well for all i know his first name is doctor but his last name is list anyway I, one of those two, I can't. I already can't remember which one, says that the twins volunteered for Hydra's experiments. Um, and this is a lot. I don't know how much of this creative decision making went on behind the scenes and, you know, out of Joss Whedon's hands. But in the comics, Wanda and Pietro are both Jewish and Romani, not just like generic Eastern European. So to have characters who are originally Jewish and Romani actively volunteer for deranged experiments conducted by very much a neo-Nazi group, and I will like I will insist on this till like my last breath. You cannot disentangle Hydra from its Nazi origins, no matter what like Agents of Shield does apparently in its fourth season to the contrary. I don't think you can disentangle that at all. So that's and I'm not the first one to say how really awful this is that not only did the MCU erase the already marginalized like ethnic origins of these characters, but they also made them like actively want to participate in Hydra crap. That's just, that does not sit right with me. That will never sit right with me. It's just gross and I don't like it at all. And again, I don't know how much of that is necessarily mm. Joss Whedon's doing. I don't know everything about the creative decision-making process I over doubt at Marvel. Was, but I, at the very least, I very strongly doubt it was just Joss Whedon because yeah, they I mean, were already I in the credit scene too. in Winter Soldier. Yeah. But yeah, no, as is. They're but, just like, given this really generic Eastern European background and i swear to god i heard elizabeth olsen's accent slip a couple times in the movie they didn't even cast like eastern european actors to to play these people just they just put weird accents on elizabeth olsen and aaron taylor johnson it's just like i i mean i don't know accents well enough to recognize that sort of thing i don't really either but i there was there were a couple moments when it was such a such an audible like slip of the accent that it was kind of jarring for me, at yeah. least. All right. So, yeah. So, yeah. That I pisses me off. Anyway, underst- yes. I understand where you're coming from with both of those things. I think particularly, like, the not using their particular, like, Jewish Romani origins is a mistake. Yeah. I think the Hydra thing is mitigated by the fact that they almost certainly didn't know that it was Hydra. But that's never... I don't think you can make that 
leap. I don't think it's, I don't think it's established at all in the movie. I, I think you're just conjecturing. And while I would it's, desperately want to believe that's true. It's partly I, conjecture and partly the fact that Strucker isn't running around shouting Hail Hydra and there aren't skull octopi on all of their missiles and everything. Well, yeah, do you think they're going to advertise it after the events of Winter Soldier? Based if on they the... want to stay, you know, functional, stay, you know, as Nick Fury puts it at the end of Winter Soldier, Rasta didn't go down with a ship? Based on what we see in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., where they have octopus skulls on everything, yes. Okay, maybe you're right about that, but still, it's just, ugh, I, I hate it. I really, really hate that. Yeah, and one, one like, counter-argument I've seen tossed around for that is, like, Oh, but in the comics, there are Magneto's kids and intellectual property and yada da da. Like, I just want to say that's really dumb because Magneto is not even thing. the only Jewish person in the entire MCU. Like, I don't he's think not the in- there are other Jewish people in the world. There are other Romani people in the world. I don't think the intellectual property thing has anything to do with it. Well, I obviously, like they like, can't say that these. I mean, they can't say that Magneto's they're kids. Magneto's children because Magneto's—they're not Magneto's children in this case. But also, like. Yeah, but it's possible to make them Jewish without making them Magneto's kids. Yeah, totally. I mean, also, like, you know, historically, like, both of them were, like, members of the genocidal Brotherhood of Evil Mutants as well. That's a whole other episode, honestly, like, the ways in which superhero stories often fail at being oppression allegories. And I think this is a... X-Men is a poster child for this sort of problem, but that is a whole other episode topic entirely. Yeah, well... We see, you know, we see that Tony, I mean, I assume mostly Tony has been upgrading the team's stuff. Cap has his fun little magnet shield, which he apparently gets rid of later on for one reason or another. You know, Nat and Clint both have some cool stuff. I feel like I've seen her wrist cuffs before. Did she have them in Avengers? Yeah, Nat's always had her wrist cuffs, but they're definitely, like, souped up in this one. Oh, probably, yeah. And Hawkeye has just, like, a ton of cool arrows and As always. Yeah, like even without S.H.I.E.L.D., they're still always getting better at stuff. Um, We also see that Nat has something going on with the Hulk in her way of... In her way of getting him to calm down and transform back into Bruce. Yeah, and that scene is actually really sweet. Like... I have about 99 problems with Bruce and Nat in this movie, but that scene is not one of them. That's actually really sweet. I do like that. It's such a, it's a nice moment of, oh, look how far these characters have come since Hulk scared the ever-living snot out of Nat in First Avenger. No, it's, God, the first Avengers movie. Oh my God, I can tell this is a mistake I'm going to be making a lot. You are the only person I've ever heard mess those up. We've been re-watching so many movies lately, okay? They're all kind of blurring together in my head. Okay, but it's also, I think, interesting that that is the only one of the whole transformations in the movie, and it's also the only one we've seen up until this movie of the whole transforming back into Bruce. Yeah, that's Because that's all, the tra- true. all the other transformations happen off screen. Yeah, you're right about that. It's interesting, like, seeing him, like, stumbling through the woods and shrinking back down. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I forget, do, is that something we see in Ragnarok too? Um, yeah, yeah. We see him like freaking out in the Quinjet. Right, right. Yes, I do remember that now. But you're right, that is the first time that that actually happens. So yeah, there's that. Um, we see that... Oh, okay, we did gloss over something that I noticed in particular. Um, 
Okay, first of all, what in the entire heck is Tony doing with this whole Iron Legion thing after he destroyed all his suits in the, at the end of Iron Man 3? That makes no sense to me. That is one way in which I feel like Age of Ultron really like goes backward in terms of Tony's character arc. But you remember that moment when the Iron Legion goes to Sokovia and tries to like clear the civilians out of the potential path of the battle and the one Iron Legion robot gets fruit thrown in his face or whatever? It was like acid or something because it chewed up the faceplate. I mean, citrus has acid. It didn't probably not enough to. I don't, I don't I know. I really it, think that it an looks Iron Man like can withstand a hit from a fruit. I mean, yeah, that's fair. But it still, it looked like somebody had just thrown fruit at it. They but, were and, throwing everything at it. Well, yeah. And they never really expand on why they're doing that. No, or... but they totally did though. When uh, or sort of when uh, Pietro was telling Ultron about you know, his and Wanda's big traumatic backstory and stuff. But that was like some civil war or something that like Stark's weapons were involved, which I guess like they could have a particular grudge against Tony Stark if it was a matter of like his weapons being involved in some civil war in Sokovia. Yeah. And I I think that moment makes a lot more sense in light of what Pietro says later. I, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I did. I sense. did want to call attention to that because that's not something I remembered from the first um, like one and three quarters times. Admittedly, that I saw this movie, the three quarters time involved power outage in a movie theater. We, my family, didn't care enough to go back in and finish the movie. Yeah. Um, so, as yeah. far as Iron Man's like Tony's whole story goes, so I think he has almost two separate character arcs. Um, the first one from the first Iron Man through the Avengers where he gets more comfortable with the idea of being a hero and the sacrifices that involve that it, that it involves. And then Iron Man 3 and Age of Ultron and Civil War, and a little bit in Spider-Man even, we see him trying to... Basically, like he's accepted that responsibility, and now he's coping with the sheer enormity of it. I like, can see that. He is struggling to find a way to keep the people he cares about safe and also keep the entire planet safe from the hostile aliens that he knows now are out there. I mean, yes, but I still feel like having... The only way I can resolve the Iron Legion thing would be that it was like a direct order from somebody with more authority than him. But there's really no, there's no shield by this time. Yeah, there's Nick nobody Fury only who comes really... out of hiding like halfway through the movie. There's nobody who would potentially say to him, uh, you know, that stunt you pulled with destroying all your dudes, that was pretty, but we actually need these things. Yeah, there was I mean, nobody the thing, to really say the thing that. is like the suits in Iron Man 3, like the problem is not Tony having a bunch of extra robots. The problem was Tony constantly tinkering and making new robots at the expense of his own mental health as a coping mechanism to avoid dealing with his actual problems. Now, see, I read that as, I guess we're talking more about Iron Man 3 for a second, but I think it's important to like, yeah, what we're it, talking about now. it definitely matters. Yeah, no, the, I saw it more as, like, in the first two movies, Tony had used his sheer material wealth as embodied by, like, all these freaking robots as a sort of shield in a way. And Iron Man 3, like the part of the absolute like genius of that movie, I love that movie so much, was that it deprived him of all that stuff. It backed him into a corner. He had to, to improvise like hell. And the way I read the ending of that movie was that he realized he was more than his possessions. He was, he didn't need to like hide behind the suits anymore. 
Which is, you know, his very last line in that movie is, you know, I am Iron Man. The suit is an Iron Man. He is. So to then, you know, have a bunch more of these self-piloting, like, drone bots, basically, in one of the first... In the first several minutes of Age of Ultron, and that, I, that was a jarring moment for me. I was just like, I thought you destroyed that. Who would have told you to build more? Why would you have built more? I mean, I don't. Is this not see, adequately explained to me? I don't see an issue with it because the Iron Legion is different from the suits because how? Because the, so I'm, many of the the suits in the very end of Iron Man three in the big like battle with the oil uh, junkyard, they were piloting themselves in much the same way that the Iron Legion was. I mean, yeah, and you saw how effective they were. In what? Okay, wait, what? They were pretty effective. Uh-huh. And, What's your point? Well, A, Tony's not somebody who throws away a concept when he's seen that it can't work. Um, but that But no, aside, that was the whole point. That What did I literally just say about the end of the movie? It's not about throwing away a concept. He, he again, he's transcending his yeah, literal yeah. material wealth. And he's not going to... Yeah, but he's not going to throw away the idea of, like, okay, having this extra backup can be useful... But this probably isn't the smartest way to go about it. I don't think that was his thought process, like, at the end of Iron Man 3 and destroying the suits, but I think that was part of his decision-making in creating the Iron Legion. Again, I think you're conjecturing. And I don't think there's adequate canonical explanation for it. I mean, this is I just all, think Joss Whedon didn't pay attention to I mean, to this is all conjecturing. Movies. I mean, but yeah, but I... I mean, The I, thing... I mean, Tony creates Ultron to pilot the Iron Legion, and the Iron Legion combined with Ultron is... Basically, his next step in, like, how he thinks he can protect the Earth from the Chachari and whatever else is out there. Iron Man 3, he just wants to have a suit that he can hop into for every possible situation, which, you know, he obviously realizes isn't really the smartest way to go about it. But it's but like... It's smarter the, than building a suit of armor around the entire friggin' world. But I'm remembering the kid who's like, you're a mechanic, right? So build something. And the things he builds are a solution to the problem he's facing. Just like like the first Iron Man was a solution to the problem he was facing when he was trapped in the Golmira. Or not Golmira, but wherever he was trapped in the cave. Like the other Iron Man suits, like not the bulky, like not like the 40-something Iron Man suits he has in Iron Man 3, but like the suits that he builds in the first Iron Man and the second and the, the third Iron Man movie. Um, well, not third, I guess, which is kind of what we're talking about. But those are also solutions to... The problems he's attempting to solve. The, the, all the extra suits in Iron Man 3 aren't solutions to a problem. They're all just him trying to distract himself from his responsibility. But the Iron no, Legion is him attacking a very specific problem. He sees the problem and he builds something to fix it. No, I think you're missing a huge part of this picture. And I like going back to Iron Man 3. Um, when Pepper calls Tony out on spending all his damn time in his workshop, um, he has that line about protecting the one thing he can't live without her. So I think the the other suits that he builds are very much bound up in this problem of trying to protect things. And Pepper is probably the most important, yes. I guess, avatar for that problem. But I would completely disagree with you that they're not those extra suits in Iron Man 3 aren't a solution as he sees it to a problem. I think he's very much building those suits in the same way that he, I guess, meant to build the Iron Legion. Maybe that was his idea, but I think it's pretty clear that they were primarily a coping mechanism for his anxiety. I mean, yes, but who says he can't see them as a solution in the same way that you're talking about? I mean, I'm sure that's what... I don't think you're reading invalidates. I'm sure that's what he thought of... 
I'm sure that's what he thought of them as. And then, like, the other, I think the other interesting thing is, like, all the suits that he's working with in Iron Man 3 where he's, like, you know, he's not sleeping, he's constantly down in his garage tinkering. He doesn't do that with the Iron Legion. He has machines. He has Jarvis, who just handles all that for him. You know, like, we even see it in the movies. He doesn't pay any attention to the Iron Legion once they go back into the shop. They just go and get maintained by all the robot arms. Which is, I think, another interesting little uh, piece of that whole set of things. Now, I think I think you're misinterpreting things again. Because, okay, let's fast forward to when Tony is telling Bruce that, you know, oh my gosh, we have the technology necessary to create Ultron. He has that whole, he has that line about a suit of armor around the world. That to me is an incredibly telling line, not only because it harkens back to the exact same mindset that he had in Iron Man 1, before he undertook any of this character development, you know, pieces having a bigger stick than the other guy. I don't remember how he put it there necessarily, but let me finish. I think the whole point of Iron Man 3, like I've been saying, is that Tony was using his suits as a shield in multiple senses. He was he was hiding his yeah. problems behind them. He was trying to protect everything with his suits and his suits alone. And you know, again, at the end of the movie, he destroys that and apparently moves beyond that. So to have him apparently regressing into that same sort of thought pattern to for him to want, you know, a suit of armor around the entire dang dang world, that just to a degree I'm like, well, character development for real people is not usually a straight line, but I don't know. I guess I don't have a lot of patience for this particular regression, especially when Tony's character development mm. was already so dang good. I think the step backward doesn't feel like it adds anything meaningful in so many ways. And this is another problem I've realized I have with this movie. It feels like it's retreading so much of the same ground that's already been trod on a lot better by other movies. Like Tony's to whole like extent. suit issue with, and Iron Man 3 did that so much better. And Steve is entirely right when he says to Tony later, you know, every time somebody tries to fight a war before it's begun, people die. I don't, that's not the exact line, but it's the gist of it. That's the same thing he said to Nick Fury in Winter Soldier. That's That was the entire crux of why Project Insight was crappy and should not have happened. Winter Soldier did that so much better than Age of Ultron did. I, I just mean, it's it's recycling so much of this so many of the same like issues that the other movies did and I don't think it's adding anything particularly compelling in in any case. Yeah, I I mean I do think Captain America probably gets the least interesting things in Age of Ultron. I feel yeah. like he in particular doesn't get as much character development oh, God, or no. like focus or depth yeah i I don't i don't think too many people would argue with me when i um submit that joss whedon just really likes writing tony stark and that shows yeah i mean i think it's i'm okay with it because he got such good development in winter soldier and civil war like sandwiching it yeah that's fair steve did to be clear i but anyway so i think one of the important things to consider with Tony's whole thing is okay I still think I don't I'm not saying I think Tony's right exactly I think he's still making mistakes in Age of Ultron but they're different mistakes than the ones he's been making before one of the things he keeps saying is like his end goal is 
to not need the Avengers anymore. That is he true. Want, he doesn't want, like, in Iron Man 3, like, all of his suits are stuff that he would be inside fighting with. I mean, in, usually, though, he does mess Yeah, I mean, with, they're but... autonomous also sometimes. Yeah. But, you know, they are, their purpose is for him to pilot them. But also, you know, his he says several times in Age of Ultron, like, isn't the point of fighting to end the fight so we can go home? And that's kind of his end goal of not needing there to always be Avengers, like, constantly standing on alert to protect the world from whatever ends up happening. But I guess being able to automate that with the Iron Legion, with Ultron, to basically make the Avengers obsolete. I wonder, actually... And make himself as Iron Man obsolete. I wonder if that's not almost coming from a more selfish impulse on his part. I think his one of his big driving forces, like one of his big insecurities, is that he's so afraid he won't be up to the task of protecting people. Yeah, so definitely. I, and But all at the same time... By the same token, there's a flip side to that coin. I don't think he wants that responsibility in a sense. Like, I think he's kind of buckling under it and he wants to to shirk that in some way without actually necessarily abandoning it. Because, like, I I had a point that I was going to... Yeah, I think I don't remember what it was. I think that is actually a good point. Because, okay, no, I remember what I was going to say. You know, after Ultron wakes up, and remind me, I have a thought about that that I want to bring up at some point. But after Ultron wakes up and, you know, wreaks havoc in the Avengers after party and flies away through the internet or whatever, which is a weird bit, There, there is a moment when all the Avengers are like, Tony, you massively screwed up. You should not have done this. The second they try to confront Tony with the consequences of what exactly he's done, Tony completely turns it around on them. And the, the speech he gives in that moment I kind of see how he was going for it. Like Joss Whedon was going for a, hey, we beat a big old threat once before as a team. We can do it again. But in that speech, Tony just ends up highlighting his own actions in that fight. He's like, I flew a big bomb through a portal and defeated all the aliens. So I that doesn't feel inspiring at all to me. That speech does not feel one bit inspiring. That instead feels like Tony trying to shirk the consequences of this really stupid mistake he made. I mean, I don't think it's supposed to be inspiring. I think it's... It's framed that way. Like, the soundtrack behind it is all like, oh, Avengers, da da I don't, I don't know necessarily <laughs> that's the case. Reaction. Anyway, yes. Um, because, I mean, I think part of it's like, I flew a nuke through a portal thing is... I mean, that is definitely Tony trying, doing a little bit of guilt tripping of the entire group. Yeah, absolutely. That is how I read it. Yeah. But it's also him, like, that was his big realization of the magnitude of what they're up against. I don't see what you're saying. Like, that was, you know, his throwing the nuke through the portal thing was, that was what traumatized him. And that was also like, and just the Battle of New York in general was, you know, where he first really saw the scale of the Chitari and just yeah. gained an understanding that there were hostile forces like that and presumably others that would target Earth that the Avengers would have to deal with one way or the yeah. other. And I do like that we got a call back to his sort of almost PTSD issues in the dream Wanda gave him. Like the the visual of the portal 
is very much part of that. I, d- I did like that. Yeah, yeah. He basically sees, like, you know, if the Avengers lose against that, there is basically nothing else that can stand against it unless they create something like Ultron. And so... But no, wait, you're talking about a moment that comes after Ultron has already messed up a lot of stuff and they yeah, know how dangerous it is. So I'm confused at what you're getting at. I mean, that was basically just... Tony was trying to justify why he created it. I don't see that at all. I mean, that's his whole thing. Like, everyone's like, you did this, you screwed up, and he's like... Oh, okay, okay. Maybe I do see what you're saying. I don't agree with it necessarily. I think it's way more self-serving than that. I mean, it's definitely it, some degree... Stark we're talking I mean, about. it's definitely to some degree, like, I wouldn't know if I'd call it self-serving, but he's definitely trying to cover oh, his would. ass and justify his own decisions. Exactly, covering his ass. That's what this whole movie is about, basically. Covering Tony Stark's ass. Thank you, Joss Whedon. Sorry, I'll stop being. I was gonna about. I was about to say I'll stop being snarky, but like that's, that's realistically not gonna, not gonna happen. I think what it comes down to is Tony is making mistakes here, and Ultron clearly goes horribly off the rails, and he absolutely should have approached it differently. He should have, you know, worked with the rest of the Avengers, come to a kind of an understanding of what they're doing, which he and Bruce did not do. They just went ahead with it themselves, which you know. Obviously, bad idea. Yeah, such a bad idea. But at the same time, I think that creating something like Ultron was, in the grand scheme of things, under, you know, better and more controlled circumstances, I think that it's the right decision, at least for what they know in their role. I, you know, in theory, that sounds all pretty, but... I mean, obviously, in practice, it doesn't work. No, exactly. And Winter Soldier again showed that I think much. I mean, Winter Soldier was also something was also something similar, like a similar in theory thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, But I think like part of the important part is that the thing in the Winter Soldier is all the guns are pointed at Earth. The thing Tony's trying to create, all the guns are pointed at whatever's attacking Earth. Which you know, again, just kind of very broad idea of it but again i don't i don't necessarily see how that makes it better necessarily like who's to say i feel okay i feel like i was about to say who's to say that all the aliens wanting to come to earth would be bad but i feel like with the general like thrust of the mcu thus far yes all the aliens would be bad but i think that says a lot more about and I've read a really interesting article on this um, by Jeffrey Johnson, sort of post 9-11 fixation on faceless villains and not really knowing who your enemy is. I think that says more about like that general um, fixation. But I digress slightly. Yeah, I mean, the Avengers don't know who Thanos is, you know, like... Yet. Yeah, yeah. And Loki was all... Like, Loki was clearly working for someone else, but they don't really they don't really have any full understanding of what the threat that sent the Chitauri was and what else might be out there. And something else I think that I noticed is, while Ultron does go terribly wrong, it isn't exactly because of Tony and Bruce doing it wrong, necessarily. It comes from... I mean... Okay, they did not have, like, they definitely made mistakes, and they should have had, like, more safety features, and they should have informed the other Avengers of their ideas and discussed it with the group. But Ultron doesn't go rogue, like, because Tony Stark or Bruce Banner crossed some wire somewhere. He goes rogue because 
he's like, you know, freaking mind stone, whatever nonsense things are going on. Yeah, I remember seeing this one. I think it was a Tumblr post uh, shortly after the original release of the movie. So like, sheesh, 2015. And it said, honestly, something like, honestly, the only accurate thing about Avengers Age of Ultron was that Ultron went on the internet for five minutes and decided humanity needed to be destroyed. I actually, you know, I think that rings even truer in this day and age than it did in 2015. But I still have a counterpoint to that. And this is the thing I wanted to bring up earlier. I call bull because clearly... Ultron never came across cat videos. Like, seriously, if Jarvis had just showed him one cat video, I feel like the entire movie could have been averted. Well, he never did go after the Black Panther. (laughs) No, he never did. You're right. So, yeah. Also, I'm just so impressed, even more impressed, at Wakanda that they clearly managed to avoid even Ultron's, like, spreading through the internet. Like stuff. Like, how did they manage to avoid that? My God, Shuri must be a genius. Like, even more of a genius than I originally thought she was, which I already thought she was like a mega, super unbelievable genius. Like, yeah, that's I mean, so impressive. Yeah, I think it's pretty likely that Wakanda has just as strong cybersecurity as they do physical security. Whatever connection to the internet they have, I doubt that they're. Which you know they do have, because otherwise Shuri wouldn't. Nessus might not have known about Vine and you know, what are those? That aside. <laughs> anyway. I think like, you know, Wakanda seems like the sort of nation that would not have its like vibranium and national defense networks actually connected to the internet in directly in any capacity. Yeah. What Alter- ca- Cambridge Analytica? Alternatively, Ultron just saw all their shit and was like, yeah, you know what? I'll just mess with these other people. But okay, Ultron but probably anyway, would have wanted all that vibranium because he, he went to Claw to get it. He would have wanted it. He would have known he wasn't going to get it. Okay, that's fair. I can see that. Anyway, um, that's all kind of neither here nor there. It's fun though. Yeah. So we go on and yeah, if we can, I guess, kind of go back and look at some of the parts of the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, Bruce, Bruce and Tony have their whole Ultron thing. Um, and there's the whole Avengers party. Which I like that scene. I think yeah, it's yeah, cool it's it's okay. Um, did you notice that there were a ton of like World War II veterans at that party? Yeah, there's Steve's friends. Yeah, and I I love that so much. I I actually that you know nice wondered gesture. if they weren't if Sam actually didn't know them from like the v- working at the VA and stuff. I mean, maybe I I, I do like the idea that Steve has gone to the VA more and more and more since the events of Winter Soldier because she mm. and Sam are dating. They're that's, that ship is my happy place. But I like the idea of both Steve and Sam befriending these um, World War II vets and just bringing every single dang one of them to the Avengers party. And I also love that Steve basically brought Sam as his date to the party. Like, that's just great. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. And the I whole, mean, the Tony whole... brought Rhodey, too. True, Tony true. Peppers didn't want to come by. Yeah, because I couldn't pay Gwyneth Paltrow enough to appear in this movie for like two seconds. Would she have been too busy running Goop at this particular point in time? I don't know. <laughs> I d- and I don't care enough I to mean, look she, up the timeline of that company. She like, had wanted to, pe- to appear in the first Avengers movie. What? She had wanted to appear in the in Avengers originally. In the original That's Avengers. That's fair. That's fair. Anyway, that is aside. It, it was worth it because she looked really cute in those shorts. But anyway. Anyway. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah where they have, we? They have their fun bit where they all try to lift Thor's hammer. And st- I swear, Steve can totally lift it. He just, like, flexes and fakes that he can't. I think it's more a matter of, like, Steve could lift it in the right circumstances, but trying to lift it to show off to people at a party is okay, not going that's to fair. be that's fair. the time for that. That's That's true. I can see that. But Thor can lift it no matter how, like, you know, braggadocio he's being about it, so... Yeah, I mean, I don't think... I also wonder if it has something to do with, like, just literal DNA. If Asgardian DNA isn't, like, slightly different from Midgardian DNA and that it it isn't, like, sort of magically adapted to Thor's particular, like, genetic signature. Just an idea. I think it's more a matter of, like, you know, it's Thor's hammer. He knows how to use it and it's built for him. Okay. Um, So I think, like... I can you know, also it's going to be his thing until someone else comes along with more of a, with as much of a reason to have it. That That's fair. That's fair. But yeah, it's a fun way of setting up like the whole... The vision thing. The hammer thing and then the vision use of oh the hammer. Oh my god. Which was awesome. Yeah, that but was we'll get, that was a good setup. Yeah, we'll get to the vision, I think. And yeah, just like in general, rewatching this movie, like things were set up slightly better than I thought they were. Just like overall, pretty much. Yeah, and I do think it was cool that the hammer did nudge ever so slightly when Steve lifted it. Yeah. I almost wonder if Black Widow would have had a better shot at lifting it. Because she has lifted it in the comics before. Yeah, I don't know. You know, that's... I, I think her not lifting it is completely consistent with like her sort of emotional subplot during this movie. Which I don't, yeah, like, I don't gosh. think she would have That's like the one to lift it, consistent but... thing about her character in this movie, which is dumb. I have so many issues with how she was written in this movie. It's yeah, yeah. Which I'm sure we'll get to. Oh, and there's yeah. also, yeah, I think it's also considered worth considering that like Thor's hammer isn't going to judge worthiness in the same way that humans are like, oh, they're a really good person sort of thing. And you know, what, I think like, it's... What sort of criteria would the heart of a dying star be able to, you know, comprehend and use? I mean, it's not that. It's the enchantment Odin puts on it. Oh, Right. Silly but, me. Yeah, but anyway. That's, that's uh, true. Maybe Odin's ideas of worthiness are a little off, given what a, I think you know, Odin's ideals of worthiness are very what different heel from he Steve is. Rogers' ideals of worthiness. Yeah, that, okay. You know, come to think of it, that actually does explain a lot. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So there's that. There's a party. Party's fun. Party has Stanley in it. Ugh, party also has some weird, like, Bruce and Nat stuff. You know, I was, okay, I was, like, the one person I knew who was not entirely opposed to Bruce and Nat before the movie came out. Like, I swear, every single one of my friends was just like, oh my god, this is gonna be terrible. And I'm like, it could be good if they did it right. And holy god, they did it so wrong. I think it's a decent concept that was not well executed. Yeah! Exactly. I, think, I mean, I think their writing together was didn't have as much chemistry as oh, it gosh. needed. Um, yeah. But I also think, like, like you know, had, if you're it's going, it's like they, they were trying to make two noble gases interact just by like floating them together. You have weird metaphors, but it was he I said think, chemistry, and it was the first thing I thought of. Okay, like they're both inert as hell. Okay, it's just it just wasn't working. Yeah, but I think the. Uh, issue with it is i don't know i think i do think that nat if you want to have a romance subplot between any of the original avengers i don't think nat would could be paired up with anybody else in them yeah she was acting so weird during the whole movie and i did see a post um at some point hypothesizing that 
it was because she was treating Bruce like one of her marks in order to, I guess, make him more susceptible to the lullaby thing. And I can see that, but my issue is I shouldn't have to headcanon away her behavior for it to make any sense. Yeah, I mean, I think it's... That's no, it's ultimately not an excuse for her characterization being so wildly inconsistent. Yeah, I mean, I think her relationship with Bruce is, is sincere, but it's also very much... I think some of that at least comes across. Maybe it, maybe it was not super executed well, but I oh, think God, it yeah. does come across in that they are kind of awkwardly written together. You know, because I don't think either of them are really people who are suited to actually expressing emotion in any healthy capacity. Yeah, exactly, which is why it was so weird that Nat was expressing so much emotion. I'm like, the only... I, I mean, felt I like she was. The whole, like, bar scene. I mean, I think with, she you know, was... With, her playing bartender and stuff like that. That was, like, the most emotional I've ever seen her. It didn't feel entire. The only... I think the thing is, like, I think she's trying to... But she's trying way too hard. She is. But like, that's the girl, thing, you know? Sh- she I has do. very rarely had reason to be genuinely sincere in her life. So it's going to be awkward when she tries to be. And I think, you know, that doesn't necessarily explain away bad writing, but I think it is definitely part of why their relationship Backing it up, though, like, she was pretty dang sincere in Winter Soldier, actually. Like, at the very end, especially, when she was, um, you know, giving Steve the folder on Bucky and stuff like that. Like, that felt like a really genuine moment. And it wasn't, like, overdone. She wasn't, like, being... What's the word I'm looking for? I she wasn't exactly like overflowing with affection. Like she wasn't, yeah. And I think she she's very deadpan by nature. Just very, you know, straight up. Yeah, no, no she's bullshit. not. A, she's not a person who I think is comfortable making herself vulnerable or even really knows how to. And I think that particularly goes against all of her training and everything. I think that's. Not really an issue when she's just, you know, friends with Steve and Falcon in the Winter Soldier. Because, I mean, they get along well, but they're like, you know, teammates and to an extent friends. But that, I think, doesn't... I mean, that doesn't require the same amount of openness that a relationship does. And I also think that her attempts at a relationship with Bruce, she knows she has to be more open and... Let herself be vulnerable, but she's not very good at it. No, it's it's just the whole thing doesn't sit right with me. And this is still okay. I was ranting about this to somebody a while ago, and I don't remember who it was, but I had noticed the same problem in this movie that I noticed in an adaptation, a stage adaptation of Pride and Prejudice that I was a part of. And the thing that these no, the thing that these two. The movie, this movie and this play have in common is other people, the way these are written, other people talk about the main couple and how in love they are a lot. And my, my deal is if you have to have outside characters stating outright on screen or on stage, how madly love your, you know, main romantic couple is, you're not writing romance right. We should be able to tell without, you know, Steve or, or um, Laura Barton or, or, or Clint talking about it. We should be able to tell. That just feels like 
an attempt to almost like gaslight the audience into seeing chemistry that is 100% not there. And it 100% does not work on me at all. I I mean, Flynn still had no idea that, had no idea what she was talking about when Laura Barton was talking about him. I mean, even so. So in a, a complaint I saw a lot in reviews of this movie back in the day was that I guess that it felt overstuffed, like Thor's little, you know, journey in the middle of the film. Thor's thing felt... was, I think, should have been. I, I know, I know, several pieces of it were cut, but I think it should have been either cut entirely or left more intact. Exactly, and my point is, if Joss hadn't wasted so much time on trying to make us believe this poorly executed romance between Bruce and Nat. He could have spent more time on Thor's, you know, like, haha, pun, pun very much intended, vision quest. Like, he could have spent a lot more time on that. It would have made a lot more sense. And I do seem to remember that Maybe, the then... studio very much sort of pushed him to include that because it was a setup for Infinity War. Yeah. And I, I, I will admit that this movie was trying to do a lot. It had a lot on its shoulders. And especially after, like, rewatching it, in light of the entire MCU, it holds together plot-wise better than I thought it did. But again, there is so much space wasted on this supremely dumb romance that could have been put towards better supporting, you know, the setup for the actual other movies in the franchise. I mean, you don't want to spend too much time on movies that aren't the movie that you're making. I mean, yes, but if he sort of reallocated that script space, the Thor thing would have felt a lot less, a lot less shoehorned in. It would have been a better movie overall. I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Like we've said, like, I don't think the Bruce-Natasha romance was executed very well just because I don't think their on-screen chemistry is very good. And I think, like... Yeah, and the writing was so clumsy. Like, you're the saying whole, that too, yeah. Yeah, the whole, like, scene in the bedroom in Clinton Laura's farmhouse... Like I could, it was that was so painful to watch. Like every single time I've seen it, because I can sort of see what Joss is going for. Like rhetorically speaking, I can see what he's getting at, but the writing is just so clumsy that it's like you don't get that at it's all. Not- Especially like, oh my effing god, Natasha is not a monster because she was forcibly sterilized. Oh my god, you could have so easily like avoided that implication if you hadn't hadn't written that scene so clumsily or just like you know I think cut he, out the whole like infertility thing altogether i kind like, of think just, that ugh. that is again not executed very gracefully oh, but i do think china shop or hulk I, in a china shop rather anyway <laughs> but i shop. but i don't think that it's the whole like oh, infertility makes you a monster thing that a lot of people have characterized it as. It very much sounded like that. Well, it's like Bruce is like, I can't have any of this family life. And I mean, the specific example he goes for is like that he isn't really capable, isn't capable of having kids, but that's almost a just example case of the more overall thing of... Heteronormativity. Not what I'm talking about. Of the overall but thing... But I'm right, though. That doesn't have anything to do with this. It's no, the yes, o- it does. It, but it's the overall thing of he cannot have a normal relationship 
with anyone of any kind and the whole like not being able to have kids thing is almost just a symptom of there's like one facet of that and i mean natasha is in very much the same boat there like she cannot have like yes she can't have kids but that's just the result of all of her training to avoid forming attachments and being a cold-blooded spy. Yeah, which they could have emphasized which, instead, easily. I mean, they could have. Like, they could have. Spy school is all about denying your emotions. Like, that would have been, I mean, that still would have been a little bit, you know, suspect feminism-wise, but much less suspect than her talking about the sterilization and immediately after that saying, still think you're the only monster around here? But she's, not, but she's not saying she's a monster because she was forcibly sterilized. She's saying that she's a monster because of the training and everything that she was forced to go through with the Red Room. And the sterilization is just like one particularly impactful facet of that. I mean, yes, but also the way she characterizes the sort of after effects of the sterilization. Um, and side note, maybe I'm just an unsentimental, like jerk here but she, like her line about oh the one thing that might matter more than a mission like jesus so many things could matter more than a mission puppies could matter more than a mission oh my god yeah this I movie frustrates like... me so much no but and then she has that whole thing about oh being sterilized it gets rid of those maternal instincts it makes everything easier including killing and then she has that line about being the monster i mean it's i don't think <sighs> that was I wish I had a stress ball right here. I'd just be squeezing the life out of it. I don't think that was a sterilization exactly as much as just not having a family overall is just like one of the ways that they are trained to be more detached. Exactly. The whole idea of not being able to have that connection somehow making you subhuman in a way that is so very much the implication the way Joss wrote it and it sucks the way he wrote it yeah and that's I that's the way that was you know broadcast on all these freaking movie screens so I think sure I think we can only do so much you know arguing about his like real intentions behind the scene or how he might have written it if it hadn't been so clumsy because that is what ended up on movie screens yeah I guess I guess okay anyway <laughs> I think we uh Kind of have to move on from this yeah, based agreed. on the time we have. Yeah. Let's see. We've covered the party. Um, yeah. After the party, there's all the South Africa stuff. Oh, man. Um, and there's, I don't think there's a whole lot to No, but there's not really. Here, actually. There's, you know, we see Claw for the first time. Yeah, which, and he loses his arm. Yep, which is a little more interesting after uh, seeing Black Panther where he ends Yeah, I, I agree. That's yeah, it. honestly, like, I feel like we've been... We've been seeing Andy Serkis so much in, like, motion capture roles that we've kind of missed out on, like, the actual person's acting abilities. Like, good lord, give Andy Serkis more live-action roles on my movie screens. Yeah, and, you know, it's kind of cool to see, like, that early reference to Wakanda, and it's kind of cool to have that common thread of claw between two otherwise unrelated movies. Yeah, I agree, I but agree. There's, and I also mean, like that he dies in Black Panther, because he's yeah. a terrible person. But anyway. there's not a lot to, I think, cover in that yeah. particular yeah. area. The you one know? thing I would bring uh, they have up... A, they have a cool fight on the boat and everything. The one thing I would bring up in the whole, I guess, South Africa scene... Are we sure that's where it is? It was filmed in Johannesburg. I don't think they... They don't explicitly state the country. So, okay. The one thing about that whole sequence that I would bring up is... 
I feel as if sort of, again, going back to the Tony Stark thing, as much as I don't really want to like dissect Tony Stark's character arc this much, I feel as if in this movie, again, sort of completely going back on his whole, you know, more than his stuff character arc in Iron Man 3, this whole movie is a series of him having you know, bigger and bigger guns, basically. He puts together Ultra. He has the Hulkbuster armor, which only maybe eventually stops Hulk, but oh my lord, how much carnage is there in the process. Yeah, but and I, I think actually, that's there's kind this of one thing piece that I. Stop the Hulk. But there's this one thing piece that I read um, by uh, Todd Vanderwerf. That was the guy who wrote it. Um, apparently, the scene where. And I. We would both be, I think, too young for this to have really, like, made an made a mark on us but apparently this the bit where the shot where the empty tower collapses because hulkbuster is ramming hulk through it that's apparently that's so very reminiscent of the twin towers crashing down on 9-11 i mean that's how a building a big building that size collapses i mean yeah but like to an audience over a certain age like we were having this discussion, I guess, earlier this week about whether, you know, the Hulkbuster armor actually like, really worked. And my position is that you can't really call the Hulkbuster armor a success when the only meaningful thing you can really do with it is just destroy a lot of stuff. And especially like that shot just, I think, really sort of brings home the horror of it all to, again, I guess people who would actually remember more of that day of that footage than we would, where I was like eight years old, you would have been still eight, not even nine then. I mean, yeah, I think the Hulkbuster was, it does basically stop the Hulk. And I think it- Yeah. And to be fair to Tony, like my immediate reaction when the Hulkbuster came out was like, okay, now grab the Hulk and like dump him in the ocean so he can't hurt people. And to Tony's credit, he did try. It didn't work, but he did try. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that's going to be inevitable when you're dealing with the Hulk is that... And Hollywood's giant can, boner for CGI action sequences. Yes, Sorry. like, you can try a lot of things, and, I mean, you see Tony does try a lot of things, and most of them aren't going to work. But I think it's to his credit that of all the time, of all the attempts to stop the Hulk by force we've seen, the Hulkbuster has probably been the most successful. I still hesitate to call it successful, but I it's do. I do see much, where you're. It's very going much success with, with conditions. Yeah, but I, I some, see what you're saying. But there's some cool engineering um, in terms of, in a lot of cases, just trying to slow him down. Like I don't think the cage thing that pops up around him is supposed to be a long-term containment solution. I think that's you know give the Hulkbuster time to get there. There's the whole like throwing new body parts onto the Hulkbuster when it gets damaged, as it inevitably will. Yeah, that um, is true. That is pretty cool. only works temporarily. There's the thing where mm -hmm. he, like, you know, he's got his, like, rapid punch yeah. pumper thing. <laughs> and then he all... And there's also the thing where he, like, grabs the Hulk's fist in this weird, like, lock-in yeah. cage thing. Which, yeah. I mean, those are all pretty clever, like, engineering solutions to the Hulk. Yeah. And the fact that it was also, uh, apparently, like... The design was assisted by Bruce himself was interesting. Right, yeah. I wonder why they named it Veronica. Uh, because Betty. Oh, so it was, it was that, wait, was that an Archie reference there? Yes. Oh my god. It's Betty and Veronica. Ugh, man. Anyway. So, okay, no, the, I guess the larger point I was trying to make is that, again, Tony, because Tony has progressively bigger guns. 
throughout this whole film. There's he, Ultron, Hulkbuster, and then the final one that he attempts to create is Vision. And the, okay, this is the biggest way in which I think Age of Ultron really just entirely undermines Tony's really great character development thus far. His his decision to make the exact same mistake that led to Ultron is very much validated in the movie. Thor says as much Stark is right. Tony is making so many of the same like errors and judgment again. And, it, and it, I don't know, maybe this is just me, but it very much feels like a, you know, the only thing that can stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun, except in Tony's case, we're talking about like autonomous robots. So the only thing that can stop a bad gun is a good gun. I don't, I don't know. I just feel like the progressively bigger robotic solutions that this movie presents to its problems. Yeah. I don't think that's, I so, don't think that makes sense with Tony's arc. And I don't think that just, I don't like it. I really don't. Yeah. And I think there's something to be said for that. I think it's worth noting that all of the bigger guns that Tony wheels out in this movie, he is wheeling out against much bigger guns than those. Admittedly, also guns. You know, made. Inadvertently, I admit like, he didn't. The whole cause Ultron to turn evil directly. I oh mean, my the, god! What do you want to bet Ultron saw 4chan? Oh god! He totally like, got on 4chan. The Iron Legion is a, like, bigger gun to deal with the Chitauri, which hilariously outnumbers it, and so was Ultron originally. The Hulkbuster is a bigger gun to deal with the Hulk, which is pretty much the biggest Earth-based gun there is, metaphorically speaking. And then Vision is... I don't know. It's interesting that Vision is, in a lot of ways, the same thing that happened with Ultron. But at the same time, I think it's in some ways different. Yeah, I mean, the movie makes that pretty obvious. And I think that's pretty but much entirely the Jarvis influence in Vision making him different. Yeah, because, like, that does... It, the, it establishes just before the Vision is created that Jarvis has been going around doing stuff without the Avengers even being aware of it. Which yeah. is interesting. And there, there's almost that sense of, like, okay, there's somebody who at least has some sense with their hand on the wheel in this case this being jarvis rather than tony who does oh god 100 no not one bit tony has and, glimmers of self-awareness and that's pretty much the extent of it yeah and there's also just the fact that the vision was created in in large part by ultron but then like all the avengers almost all the avengers have a hand in eventually creating him not really Steve. Steve, I feel like, is one of the few who doesn't. Which Not is directly, but Which he... is interesting because something I noticed was the focus on the screen and the sort of regeneration cradle that Vision was born in. Um, you know, said power overload or whatever. And it, for some reason, it really reminded me of, you know, Steve's own sort of super soldier origin. And when, you know, Howard Stark turns the right arrays up to 100% and everything on the control parallel. panel sparks. Yeah, I found that... I was not expecting to see that parallel, and I still don't quite know what to think of it, but I yeah, noticed that's it. that's interesting. It's also, I think, interesting that, uh, I mean, Steve doesn't have a direct hand in it as much, but he does use his shield to smash some stuff, and he is the main dude to be like, no, don't do this, and then Quicksilver, like, kind of operating under his orders, goes around and 
like unplugs everything, and then Thor shows up and also helps. I can see that. Yeah, but that's a bit of a reach, regardless. Yeah. Okay. On that note, I kind of want to talk about Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch. Like, besides their ethnicity and height-related debacle, um, I think they're still very interesting characters in this movie in their own right. That's I think worth worth uh, going over a little bit. Yeah. So we're getting a little bit short on time, but I do want to talk about the Maximovs, um, Wanda and Pietro, who start out as sort of villains, but end up becoming the next two Avengers. Sort of. They they totally become Well, Avengers. no. I mean, yes, but Quicksilver also dies. And okay, this is one thing... Yeah, but he's an Avenger before he dies. I mean, yeah. I alluded to earlier... I said that like things are foreshadowed better in this movie than I thought they were. I still think Quicksilver's death was kind of stupid and that how was he not able to outrun a bunch of bullets? But like I noticed a lot in this movie that they showed him like very exhausted from running a lot of the time. Yeah. I Beyond think- even just the bit where the guy accidentally clips him with the bullet. So I, I think I can more easily buy... Quicksilver, you know, just not having enough energy in him to move fast enough to dodge all those bullets. I still think it's kind of stupid. Yes, I mean, but I... it's no longer quite as stupid as Darwin's death in X Men's First Class to me. That was just peak stupid. Okay, I want to get back to the Darwin's death thing after we're done with this episode. <laughs> okay, but I think it's the Quicksilver thing is a. I think he's my favorite depiction of super speed in anything ever. I love the part where he grabs Thor's hammer and just yanks him along. Yeah, it's that's so amazing. Good. And this is partly because, like, he's one of the only speedster characters I've seen who's not ludicrously overpowered. Okay, that's fair. He's super fast, but, you know, he's not like the Flash who can just time travel and yeah. crazy Although nonsense. Although, admittedly, I, I and... hate that Fox whitewashed Pietro even further to Peter Maximoff in the X-Men movies, but I do... Yes, but... The sequences with him running are really hilarious. I have seen those. They're pretty entertaining. Yeah. Would you say that he's overpowered? I haven't actually seen him in those movies, but based on the sequences I have seen, yes, absolutely. Okay, fair. Um, But Pietro in Age of Ultron is super fast, but he's not infallible. He has... I mean, we see that he does have super reflexes a little bit when the floor gets shot out from under him, but he doesn't have, like, basically superhuman stop time and do whatever he needs to do power. You know, like, he has... There's yeah, ways which that is he what other Quicksilver has, for sure. Yeah, like, there's ways that he can be contained, and there's ways that he can be held up and stopped, which is interesting, and basically one of the few non-overpowered speedsters around. Yeah, that's interesting. I will definitely, I'm definitely with you there. More interesting, of course, the characterization of both of them, which I think I picked up on a lot more in this movie. Once they become Avengers, okay, it's interesting first that they both immediately turn on Ultron when they realize that he's going to destroy the world. You know, they're not crazy, they're not stupid. Side note, can we talk about how Ultron's motives just, like, shift for not really an apparent reason? It's just like, oh, the Avengers are destroying the world, to, oh, the entire world needs to be destroyed. There's not really a clear transition there, but I digress. Ultron as a villain is very interesting to me, and I would love to talk about him more, but I don't think we have time in this episode. (laughs) Unfortunately. Which, you know... We'll We'll do plenty of villains episodes, so we can discuss him more in that context. Yeah, yeah. 
I think it's cool that Steve is the one that manages to get them both actively on their side, especially because he was the one who related to them earlier. Because exactly, yeah, I was just going to bring that up. Um, and he's he doesn't even, like, question it or anything. Like, Quicksilver rushes in, punches Ultron to rescue him, and he just sees a train is going, and like, okay, you two help with this train thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and after that, I think it's cool that like, Quicksilver is really quick to... Uh-huh. Quicksilver is really quick to fall in um, behind Steve. Like, you know, when Steve wants the vision thing shut down, Quicksilver just runs around and pulls, unplugs everything. And then, like, Quicksilver is just generally pretty... Uh, he seems more enthusiastic about becoming an Avenger than Wanda does initially. Like, Wanda is on board with it, um, but he's really like, yes, we can help the, this... A whole situation let's go for it mm-hmm. and he's almost seems like he's having a little more fun with it not just not exactly having fun especially once he gets to like sokovia with the floating city and everything but while wanda is overwhelmed and kind of freaking out in the whatever house with clint pietro is just going nuts and smashing robots in slow-mo which in which is some really cool shots by the way mm-hmm. but, I'll, I'll agree with you there yeah but then, like, Wanda kind of has her little freak-out moment with Clint, um, which I think was cool that, you know, she's kind of panicking, and she's all like, oh, it's all my fault, and Clint is like, whatever, it's everyone's fault, that's not important right now, and kind of gives her a little bit of a pep talk, which she takes a little bit to take to heart, but she does, and mm-hmm. definitely goes with it. But I think that until Pietro died, I think that Wanda would not have stayed on with the Avengers if Unless he was. I can see that. And I think she becomes an Avenger, at least in part, to like do what he would have done. I can see that. I also hesitate. I was going to say I also hesitate to um, base so much of her characterization around like men. But honestly, this is the MCU. It's a sausage fest. It's unavoidable. Yeah, I think Scarlet Witch definitely gets much more and much better development in Civil War. Oh, agreed. Definitely. But I do wish that she got, like, actual, some kind of, like, I want to say, like, female mentoring type thing from Nat. Yeah, which, that, could, that could work. I, almost, I, think I be... also feel like Maria Hill would be oh, that probably would be a much cool. more stable mentor for her, honestly. That I would... don't think Nat is very much the mentoring type. Oh, definitely not. Which I think is part of why it would be fun. Yeah, to Nat see. would be more like the unsentimental big sister. Yeah, I just and yeah. Maria Maria Hill be a much better mentor. God, now I need all this fanfic. Just in general, I think I'm just thinking of it now. I think it would be cool to see the like main female Avengers characters interacting with each other a little more. Yeah, and I mean, hopefully, we'll see that either in Infinity War or once Captain Marvel comes around and starts doing shit. I was going to say, I doubt it's going to happen in Infinity War. Like, the gender balance is just so out of whack there. I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Ugh, I'm not hopeful. I'm, I'm still just, I'm still pushing for an A-Force movie after all this with Captain Marvel and the female Avengers. And God, Valkyrie. yeah, I hope Captain Marvel is successful enough to get Marvel Studios off their asses and make them make an A-Force movie. Or just more women, more diversity among women. Ugh. Yep. Frustration. So much frustration. Yeah, I mean, this has been part of our conversation about Age of Ultron. Yeah, I think overall we're at the same place where we were when we started. Like, I'm still, like, I still think the movie is 
slightly better than I thought it was at first, but I still would not call it a good movie. It has too many flaws and is too sort of unoriginal for me to call it good. And what would you say your verdict is on the movie upon another rewatch? I, I mean, it's not my favorite movie. I don't even think it's among my favorite MCU movies. Uh, I think it has a lot of great moments that definitely make it worth watching. Um, and I think that it's overall, I think it does work better as a simply a piece of the MCU than it does as a like standalone movie. Yeah, which, which I can see why that would be a legitimate weakness that and like, I think critics it, would identify. Yeah, I think that's it. true of a lot of the at least the big Avengers movies. Mm, franchise fatigue. I don't it's not franchise fatigue. It's just I'm I'm saying I'm feeling franchise fatigue. I am not, but I don't feel any kind of fatigue. I just like everything. That's true. Yeah, I mean again I'm think I'm generally less critical of a lot of things. Yeah, I am very critical of a lot of things. I mean, I think there's definitely a lot of very valid criticism with Age of Ultron, some of which we've discussed, you know, again, like the Nat, the whole Nat-Bruce romance thing (sighs) could definitely have been executed better to make them have better chemistry and stuff. I do think Tony's characterization works in the grand scheme of things. I wouldn't say it's a step backwards. I would say it's something of a step sideways, maybe. But neither here nor there. I can and more see that. I don't agree with it, but I can still see that more. I would also love to talk about Ultron himself in the future. Yeah, that's going to come in a villains episode for sure. Yeah. You could probably I just think... do a whole villains episode on Ultron, honestly. Yeah. And also with Hawkeye's family and farm, which we've already talked about off the podcast, but I love to get that conversation on record as well. Yeah. Yeah. So. And so, yeah, I think overall Age of Ultron definitely has its flaws. I think it's... Plenty. I would put it in the lower half of MCU movies, but mm-hmm. that's still, like, among good company. For the most part, yeah. And... We just won't talk about the Incredible Hulk. Yeah. I think <laughs> overall, like, there's a lot of justified criticism, but I think it also gets to some extent a bad rap from certain degrees of fandom. It almost reminds me of The Last Jedi in that sense, but The Last Jedi is I think much better. I was going to say I was franchise. you all, you all wouldn't see but I was just staring at him like are you really making that comparison? Yeah, I, I think The Last Jedi gets is similar in that it gets a lot of criticism from fans and a significant portion of that criticism is based on like either mismatched expectations or not quite understanding things. But I do think Age of Ultron has a lot more that is actually worth criticizing. Yeah, no, I don't think the... I think the criticism for The Last Jedi is coming from a lot of male fan bros. So, yeah, um, there's going to be a lot more, I'm sure, in yeah, the future coming from our MCU rewatch. Oh my god, yes. And this was, yeah, I mean, this was recorded before Infinity War came out. Um, yeah, this so, is, but you know, Jeopardy time, magic yeah. noises, I guess, I don't know. This but. is part, yeah, so this is part of our, yeah, this is part of our, like, Massive long run. Pre- yes. Pre-Infinity War rewatch of everything. Oh my god, we've so, been watching so many movies, you guys. I'm exhausted. You know, I guess it might be fun to go back and read, our, watch our Infinity War episode and see uh, how things might have changed between now and then. Oh man, yeah. <laughs> it's a little weird talking about these time things, but yeah, that's, I guess, what you guys can do and we can't yet. Yeah, I guess. So, shall we just end it there? Is this a good note on which to 
cap things off. Cap things off. Oh my god. I was fully aware of what I said when I said it, but I was like, am I gonna get away with, like, the pun not being reacted to just this once? I don't know why I was hopeful. Yeah, anyway, I... So. Yeah, so that's um, some of our many thoughts on Age of Ultron. Yeah, I guess tune in for future episodes and more thoughts, I guess. Yep, see you later. That's it for this episode of Yelling About Superheroes. For more yelling, you can follow us on Twitter at yellinabtsupers or check out our website at anchor.fm slash yelling-about-superheroes. You can also visit Whitney's blog at whitneythompson.wordpress.com where we post our reading lists for each episode. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, and we'd love it if you leave us a review as well. Our theme music was composed by Rodrigo Vicente, and you can listen to more of his work at hooksounds.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time.